Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. A hatchet hack job out of a bedroom in Toronto. My name is David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And Lauren Latour cannot join us, which is a shame because Stephen and I are a couple of empty-headed klutzes and are nothing but pretty faces. If you saw us, you would say, get those men on prime time, but... For the love of all that is good and holy, do not let them speak. And yet here we are. Because, I mean, you would see the juiciness of our stature. And you would think, those men, those young men are simply waiting for a strong and confident lover. I went off the rails <laughs> so quickly. To give them some direction in life. All right. And so we're going to attempt to speak very um, complexly and coherently and cogently on uh, the most pressing environmental topics of the day, of the week, of our lifetimes. And Stefan will be interviewing who? Uh, I'll be interviewing Anita Lee, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Green Line, which is a new media outlet that launches next next Friday, actually. So a week today. That's environmental journalism? No, it's uh, community-driven journalism and hyperlocal journalism, and we talk about sort of a combination of the importance of independent journalism as well as, as well as the ways in which local and community journalism could cover climate change issues. Does that mean they go out and talk to people in the neighborhood and ask them what kind of stories they want to have covered? Or it's about creating a relationship consistently with the people you serve, so it's not just. You go in you, and extract information from them. It's about maintaining a relationship with the people that you are actually working with. Maintaining a relationship with the people impacted by the stories you're covering? And following their guidance as to what maybe other stories you'd want to cover. And so where is, is this happening across Canada or where? Toronto. In Toronto. Yeah. And they're calling it the Green Line. Yes. An ode to the Line 2, which is what it's now called. But as anyone who's seen a Toronto subway map thinks of it, it's a long green line that goes from Scarborough to Otoko. And so we're going to start in with some climate news. Is that right? Let's dive in. Uh, how, how many times did I tell you, Stefan? I do not dive in to the news. Well, I do. I unfold it like a uh, delicately placed pashmina so that I may show you the intricate lacing and needlework. And um, what's the word I'm looking for? How can I know? Embroidery. <laughs> The Threadwork on the Embroidery. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has adopted a rule that is going to force all publicly traded corporations to disclose, to be honest, to to have a standard uh, by which their emissions and climate risks in general can be measured, as well as their reliance on carbon offsets. So the idea is to make any investor who might be investing in these companies, trading their shares, uh, savvy to the specific emissions of those companies and how they might be exposed to climate risks in general. Stefan suggested that might mean if you have uh, buildings and infrastructure and, and, and financial resources in the way of climate change like yeah you'd be th- like you know it'd be things like if you have a bunch of 
if you have a bunch of buildings that are on floodplains that will be likely to be flooded more often, or if you have, say, a bunch of things that need to be ins- that can't be insured anymore because they might be lit on fire because of big fires, or really any type of these ongoing, either from increased hazardous weather or from rising sea levels, those are the mo- most common too. But really, could be as far as you know, even places that might have reliance on permafrost and if that permafrost goes maybe there's other problems really it's it could be a huge range but it seems like mostly it's about emissions and they're saying that a company has to disclose its emissions because if if the global whatever market is shifting towards low emissions uh, business practices then companies with high emissions should not be considered as profitable into the future as as otherwise yeah so i think you could imagine climate risk in both directions, right? You can imagine climate risk for the business practice itself, which is if we take the climate change seriously, can your business continue? But there's also the climate risk of how susceptible is your business for being damaged by the hardships that climate change will bring. But both are risks that you would want to know about if you're going to invest in a company. But the emissions are much more easily quantifiable. Easily more quantifiable, yes, but much more difficult to, I think, probably create some sort of standardization. So that's where I'm really interested in this question, which is how well will these places be following up with these companies? Will they be creating standardization in reporting but and collecting the data or just reporting the data? You know, like how much are they going to be ensuring that the data that is reported is correct? You know, time and time again, we hear about different places where what is reported to regulators ends up being wildly off, especially in the case of things like methane from oil and gas. And so I am curious about how much they will be following up on these regulations. Now, I will say that financial regulations and regulations that come from places like the SEC are usually taken much more seriously than most other regulators. Like the financial regulators have a lot more ingrained power than most other regulators. So this could be a, a actually a significant step if it is done well. And why is it significant? They're building in climate considerations to like the very fabric of their what economy. What it does is it sets up the possibility that you could do that, right? You could start requiring companies once now that they're const- now that they're all disclosing how much emissions they are to start reducing their emissions. But even just requiring all these companies to admit it creates a lot more reliable information to be held to hold these companies accountable that would not did not exist prior, right? Like all of these companies could say a lot of things, but they were never re- if they weren't being required to disclose, and if there weren't strong regulations to ensure that the disclosure would be true, then you know no, everyone's sort of flying a little in the dark. But this could mean that you'd be able to really directly even say compare every bank, for example, on its global emissions or its emissions that are fall underneath this ruling, and then say. I want to invest in only the twenty, the top twenty percent best companies in this issue, and and that kind of thing would really start moving the market because if you start offering that to people, that becomes a if everyone's reporting it, it becomes a way to really start using that the power of that disclosure, you know, to support the better actors and harm the worse actors. All right, moving on. 
ExxonMobil was attempting to stop the states of New York and Massachusetts from probing into whether they lied to investors and the public about what they knew about climate change. Um, they were trying to argue that there was within their free speech to essentially lie about uh, climate change. But now they have been rejected, and now the attorneys general for New York and Massachusetts are going to be allowed to obtain documents from Exxon in order to uh, move forward with their lawsuit and potentially litigate against them for um, misleading people about what we were just talking about, their own company's risks, their own company's... Well, no, would, this be, would, this, would this be, do you think, them saying that, in fact, your, your company is not worth as much money as you're claiming it is, therefore, it's fraud, therefore you're committing a kind of fraud because you have been trying to tell people that climate change isn't really happening, even though you knew that it was? Or is it like, or you're actually endangering people? Uh, not, not people you have a financial duty to, but just people who happen to live also on the planet. I mean, I think that I mean, if they're probing, then they could probably bring either argument, right? Like, I think it's probably a lot easier to bring the argument against lying to investors because there's rules against lying to investors, <laughs> um, which, again, goes back to that last story about why requiring them to disclose is important because if they then disclose it and they're lying, then you can hold them accountable. Whereas harder to say whether or not the kind of rules exist of like, you, yes, you're not allowed to totally lie, in advertisements, but as we've seen almost everywhere, that's a very weak law. Like, you can worm away your way around it. So my bet would be that you're probably more likely to see one brought from a lying to investors standpoint. The other thing here, though, is that it's kind of amazing that their argument is that you, you're you allowed to lie because that's your, that's your First Amendment right. Um, and ties directly into how much the PR industry is also to blame for where we're at. You know, in the same ways that the PR industry was so front and center in making the tobacco issue and the cigarettes issue so much worse by protecting them for so long. The same can be said here. And for folks who want to learn more about that, I really highly recommend the Drilled podcast. I believe it is season three that is about the PR industry, but either way, the Drilled podcast has a really good segment about the ways in which you know public relations companies have allowed for the delay of climate action quite strongly. So Oliver Millman wrote in The Guardian last week that Joe Manchin's reluctance on electric cars is an ominous sign for Biden's climate fight. So here we have yet another article about Joe Manchin simply being against electric cars. One man, one senator in the United States being like, I don't like electric cars. And this potentially derailing a whole half trillion dollar package from the U.S. government trying to build uh, electric vehicle infrastructure mansion said at one point that like when when uh henry ford invented the model t the government did not build filling stations it was just that that's what the market wanted and so therefore the government should not be building charging stations you know what the government did do when 
the electro when the Model T was built, build a unbelievably huge amount of of car infrastructure called roads and highways and allowed for the tearing up of other non-car-based public transit throughout America. That's true. We lost, especially even in Canada, we lost all of our streetcars because of this. Yeah, one of the reasons why Toronto has is one of the largest streetcar networks. It's one of the few places that it didn't happen as badly. Like, to argue that the government has not or did not support gasoline-powered vehicles is one of the most ahistoric claims you possibly could make. That uh, is, but he, said, but he said in the speech, Stefan, I've read history, I believe. Yeah, he said, I've read history. Oh, great. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Are you kidding me? Like the last hundred, the last hundred years, the 1900s are, of American history are almost best understood as a consistent capitulation to a combination of racist rules to keep black ownership away from basically everything including housing and a sub and a complete giving up to the power of car like you can only understand the suburbization from those two lenses basically like it's unbelievable to argue that the american government has not supported cars it's comically dumb i just don't understand why joe manchin gets to be this guy you know why does he why does he get to be this uh all-powerful i don't agree with electric cars therefore they're not happening dude like can't someone step in i mean within the party forget about the republicans within the party stuff i mean i'm sure they have tried everything it's, are you are you sure they've tried everything? I, I, I mean, I can't. Or is Joe Biden a senile old man who is too tired for this task? I mean, I don't know. I like it's amazing how much the like this is a Democrat who is completely owned by the fossil fuel industry. Everyone knows it. It's very obvious, and therefore, the fact that the Republicans, even the ones that people keep hoping might be the reasonable ones are holding their line, lets him be the kingmaker. And that is a very bad place to be if you want any reasonable action. Like, what's in, what's incredible is m- the Mitt Romneys of the world, I'm sure, understand climate change. And yet, he is so cynically responding to all of this that even he can't vote for legislation that is necessary to allow for real tackling of this once-in-a-generation kind of issue. Well, Manchin also was able to invoke the other uh, wonderful little tool, China. So on the one hand, you go, let the market decide, but if not, you bring in the fear, the fear of those commies, because he says, he remembers he remembers standing in line in 1974 trying to buy gas, but he do, and he does not want to be standing in line waiting for a battery because we're dependent on a foreign supply chain, mostly China. Of course, they've allowed all of their companies to move to China. I mean, none of manufacturing. The, none of that makes sense. You know, like they literally just had to send Biden to over to basically beg Saudi Arabia to increase the amount of oil production they're having because of the of the war in between Ukraine. Like it, the idea that somehow America currently is not in 
the throes of global supply chains and it would be electric vehicles that would be the issue of this is unbelievable. And if you're really concerned about that, then what he should really be doing is then at least supporting a v- incredibly rapid and quick um, rollout of renewable energy because that's the only way to ensure you're not responsible for global, global supply chains for energy. And Manchin's definitely not doing that. It's all so cynical. He doesn't want the Chinese preventing him from driving. The only only other thing I will say before we, we move on about this is that there have been some positive signs out of Europe in regards to how some countries are responding to the increased gas prices. And this would be a time right now where you could imagine them using the increased gas prices to really push for an ex, you know expansion of hybrid um, or electric vehicles. And yet, instead, we're getting this. And we're getting Gavin Newsom in California putting together a bill where he's going to basically give people buckets of money to pay for gas. Because we can't imagine a world where people could get anywhere using any other type of transit. And it's this... And we see it here in in Ontario with Doug Ford once again using the same Ford tactics of basically giving, giving money back to car owners as if that's the populist move while giving nothing back to anyone who uses any other mode of transit. This obsession with the driver as somehow the most central type of person in our society is so antiquated and toxic. And it leads us to bad design after bad design after bad design that is literally killing people all around the world, from air pollution to being run, being hit by cars because of you know, two car friendly spaces, to any to the you know the con the larger consequences of climate change. These are all tied back to this deification of driving, which has to be stopped. Well, I can feel you heating up your switchblade as we speak, so that you may brand my skin with. Uh the ire that you are uh, raging with. So we're going to go to a music break and then come back with some Canadian environmental news. And so, of course, neither of us know what this means, but we're going to mention it. The NDP has decided <laughs> to prop up the liberal government or to, to, to state that they will, they will support them through 2025. So they're going to support four of their budgets because the liberals have a minority government and they could you know, crumble if, if another large enough party doesn't support them. So Jagmeet Singh has said, we will support you if you do some pharmacare stuff. I mean, it has it has a few planks. Okay. A better healthcare system, which is some of that work on pharmacare and some other pieces, um, and dental care as well, I believe. Uh, making life more affordable for people. Are we so going to get dental because of this? I mean, am I going to get dental? Tell me, I'm going to get dental, Stefan. The the first point of a better healthcare system is launching a new dental care program for low income Canadians. 
So right. potentially. I might get some dental. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, the yeah, second one's making life more affordable for people. That's largely focused on housing. Uh, the third one is all about climate change called tackling the climate crisis and creating good paying jobs. That is includes things like the just transition and and other things like a coal phase out uh, or sorry, not coal phase out, sorry. Uh, planned to publicly to phase out public financing for the phosphorus sector, which was already mentioned in other liberal measures. A good a better deal for workers, which includes ten works six uh, which includes ten paid which includes ten days of paid sick leave, as well as an anti scabs rule. Um, some promises on reconciliation, and then some promises on taxes and democracy. Um, I will say that the most of the stuff here, especially under reconciliation and uh, the climate crisis pieces is a bit of a wait and see approach in that it's not that different in some ways it's identical to what the liberals had said that they were going to do but there are a couple places that i will say are exciting um my favorite one is that they're already getting bank ceos mad at them at the idea that they will institute a three percent tax on any a three percent surcharge on bank profits over a billion dollars due to their uh windfall of money during the pandemic and i think anytime you have bank ceos getting mad at you you're probably doing something right right and not to mention stability canadians love stability i mean it would be very annoying to have another election next year be given how little changed in the last election so there's some value there and they are hoping to expand election day to three days of voting, which I think is also a solid plan to actually help more people actually engage in voting. Anything that helps voting. Although what is not here, of course, is any consideration of a better voting system, which would be obviously much better. But Which Trudeau originally ran on and then immediately did not do. Exactly. All right. So Inuvik in the Northwest Territories has built a single wind turbine, which is supposed to be running by next year. And this one wind turbine is going to cut their emissions by 25% because they were relying on diesel in terms of electricity generation. And is going to save them $3 million, apparently, a year. So this one wind turbine is going to save this city $3 million a year. And now the people of the town are trying to be like, you should lower our electricity bills because of this. And I guess they're going to decide whether or not they will. Yeah. I mean, this is very cool. Anytime you can combine a ability to reduce emissions with an ability to support, you know, these remote communities, I think is huge, you know, and there's some other work going on across Canada that's trying to do this type of thing. And this is like, when you think of examples of climate action that simultaneously take into account a more just, better world with reducing emissions, this is some of the stuff that we mean. And often they end up being hyper-local. Like often they end up being something like a single wind turbine um, because there are solutions that come up from the community itself. All right, I'm going to mention these next uh, few stories in a row here. Uh, the new hotlit nation who was trying to reclaim their land from the B.C. government uh, is now having their court, uh, their case being held 
and heard in the BC Supreme Court. So this is going to be going on all summer, and then even in September they're going to do some more commentary or something after they've heard people arg- the arguments in court. And the, the New Hotland Nation, uh, they found that their, well, their their mountains, their hills, big hills, were being intensely logged, and their salmon stocks were declining. And so they sued the BC government to take back control of that land, and the BC government argued that it, they had abandoned the land and therefore couldn't claim a right to it. Of course, what actually happened was that they were kicked off the land. And their lawyer's pretty confident, and the, the, the this type of thing has been won before in BC, but it took 25 years for the Silcotan Nation to win a similar kind of case. But their lawyer... Um, Jack Woodward is thinking this can be done much faster and with less money. And so if they succeed, which they are pretty confident that they will, uh, it could smooth out the process for other nations in BC to reclaim their right to control their ancestral territory from the BC government. And uh, in Ontario, uh, our government has authorized exploratory drilling by Noront Resources in the Ring of Fire. And this is a this is a area of land in far northern Ontario, which is some people are saying like it could be like a gold rush of how um, important these minerals are, and especially for building a, like a renewable car um, manufacturing in Ontario and stuff like that, uh, or electric cars, and. Uh, even and this happened a day after it was decided that their process, their consultation process with local indigenous nations was, quote-unquote, rec- uh, corrosive of reconciliation. At one point, uh, a mining company sent emails to the to Ottawapiskat saying that, implying that it was the private corporation that was in control of the consultation process, when in fact it was not. And so the companies were sort of deliberately lying to First Nations to confuse the process. And now, lo and behold, they're going to start drilling there. And finally, in Nova Scotia, we've talked about this story several times, uh, and it's just sort of still developing. Um, In Nova Scotia, the Mi'kmaq fishers who were starting their treaty fishery, um, according to what they're allowed to do, right? A small catch fishery, uh, the, the Mi'kmaq, several Mi'kmaq nations were beginning to catch lobster on their own terms on the East Coast. And at one point, about a year and a half ago, some local fishermen, uh, Canadian settler fishermen, were sort of uh, intimidating them. And so they, at one point, they surrounded a whole uh, lobster pound where, where lobster was being kept that had been caught by the Mi'kmaq fishers. And intimidated them, stole their catch. Like I think, f- poured cement into the into the building or something, and they burnt a van. And they ended up burning down the whole pound later on, and they burnt someone's boat. And they were th- like threatening them on the water and stuff. The arsons are still being charged in court, but what's happened now is that the people who are doing the intimidation and the theft and so forth are not going to be charged by the courts with anything. They're just doing a restorative justice thing. So they're trying. They're saying that, no, this has to be worked out within the community instead of these people being charged with any crime. And, of course, uh, 
it's being argued on the Mi'kmaq side, side that this is like a hate crime and you're just trying to tell us to work it out amongst ourselves. That's what, they, that's what restorative justice is. You have, you have the victim and the perpetrator. They're supposed to, they're supposed to come to sort of some sort of agreement with, with dialogue and so forth. However, the guy who was in the pound uh, on the night when the whole place was, was uh, surrounded and uh, by like dozens of people uh will not be participating in the restorative justice process so in the same in the, in the same way that you have to note the ways in which the justice system quote unquote reacted to the truckers in a way that was seemingly so out of step and how they would normally respond to indigenous communities um and in other people who are more commonly fighting for their rights and pushing its government. This is another example, I think, of something that generally I think people would like. I think you restorative justice, I think, is generally a positive and good step. But to have it so selectively used in times when the intimidation is co- is coming from, you know, the settler state brings these kinds of things into question. If every time we see the justice system laying off, you know, not being super heavy handed is during times when the perpetrators are, you know, in some ways how the state sees itself. And every time you see protesters being made an example of, they are, you know, they are indigenous communities or other communities that the state might see as other. You have to ask why it's like that. Um, and just to go back to your first one, uh, your first point about the New Hotland Nations fight in B.C., it is unconscionable in my mind that you could be a government that claims that literally passed UNDRIP and still fight this out. Like, you have to understand that that cannot be one and the same. Like, UNDRIP has to come with changes in how you interact with indigenous communities. And if that is not to argue that a community that has been a part of what has been labeled by this Canadian government a active ongoing genocide was will, did not was not pushed off its land but willfully left it is horrendous and i cannot believe that the i mean the bc government has not let me given me a lot of faith in them but i'm depressed that they continue to prove me or prove those who would be skeptical correct all right, so now we'll go for a music break and come back with Stefan speaking with Anita Lee. I am here as previewed earlier in the show with Anita Lee back again, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Green Line, which is a brand new media outlet that is launching in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for being here, Anita. Thanks for having me again, Stefan. So for those who might have missed our conversation, I think now it might have been a bit of over a year ago, 
Can you tell us a bit of your backstory and how you ended up founding the Green Line? Yeah, for sure. So for those of you guys who are not familiar, the Green Line is a hyper-local independent news outlet that's all about investigating the way we live to help young Torontonians and other underrepresented communities survive and thrive in a rapidly changing city. So I probably the last time I was on the show, I was probably like maybe in the earlier stages of development of this publication. It is a community-driven publication that really works with communities to surface stories that actually matter to them. And fundamentally, what we're trying to do is to try to get Torontonians to take action on issues that matter to them in their communities. So the reason why I developed the Green Line is because it's really the outlet that I would have, I want to see, like that I have always wanted to see for myself. Like I'm, in, I'm 34 right now, but this is something that I would have used as a lifeline in my early 20s, for example. I'm somebody who grew up in Scarborough, which is a very under-resourced part of Toronto. It's actually a suburb of Toronto. Where I grew up was largely in a working-class part of the suburb, but Scarborough itself has, you know, close to 700,000 people. It has lots of new immigrants. It's heavily racialized. And so I remember growing up and feeling like people put down, like, Scarborough a lot. They would come up to me and say, you know, they would call Scarborough, like, Scarlum as like kind of a really racist reference towards Harlem, indicating that it was full of crime and grime. They would call it like Scarberia, indicating that it was like in the middle of nowhere, very removed from the rest of the city. So even though I was really proud of growing up in this place that was quite underrepresented, I just didn't feel like the place I grew up in was quite respected and nor was it very well reflected in existing media. So that is kind of like the beginning of the story of how I came to start to want to develop an outlet like this. I also, for those of you guys who aren't aware, I worked in legacy media in Canada for a long time. So I worked at the Gold Mail, the Toronto Star, CBC, CTV, and then the latter half of my career is largely at digital media outlets in the United States. So really for me, I worked at all these places that I felt like while they produce a lot of good journalism, I remember pitching stories to these companies or my editors at these companies. And oftentimes my pitches would be rebuffed, especially if they were about, you know, communities that I was part of that were not really well reported by these publications. So that's kind of the Coles Notes version of why I was driven to create the Green Line. It's really, like I said, a publication that's meant for folks like myself who are part of fabric of the city, who are really the driving force behind this sense of culture and community in Toronto, but are really underserved and overlooked. And I want to be able to center those communities in a way that isn't just, you know, trauma focused. Of course, it's important to to cover stories in a way that are nuanced and really acknowledge intergenerational trauma, especially for underrepresented communities. That said, there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of nuance and, and interest and, and celebration within these communities as well. So yeah, we're really trying to provide a holistic understanding of these communities. Awesome. As a fellow Scarbinite, Scarberian, Scarberian, <laughs> it is obviously heartened to hear that. If you happen to be a Scarberian listening to this show, thanks for listening. My brother is convinced that it is Scarborough's time. So maybe <laughs> this is this is our decade, everybody. So you sort of talked about how you worked in legacy media and yep. that how that informed your approach to the green line. And so maybe you can define or or put a more of a finer point on the distinction between the two. You know, what makes the green line different? Yeah, absolutely. So the way, so typically the way it works, and I'm going to go into like teacher mode because I actually teach at uh, Ryerson X University and Centennial College. But the way news gathering typically works is that it's a very top-down process. So you have a group of like editors, largely historically homogenous group of editors from similar backgrounds, but at a similar class level, you know, similar education level, 
dictating the news of the day. So they're like, based on our news judgment, this is what the public needs to know. And we're going to tell them that this is what they need to know. So it's a very top-down process. The difference with the Green Line is that we're very community-driven. And so it's a very bottom-up process where we're consulting communities on an ongoing basis, not just like in the lead-up to a story. It's oftentimes when you report on a story in an establishment or traditional environment, you report on the story and then you only talk to your sources up until the point of publication or even up until the point of writing. And then you kind of drop the story and you never follow up on it ever again, unless it's like a major story where you know, your, your editor's telling you to kind of follow up on a consistent basis. The difference with the community-driven process, which is something the Green Line embraces, is that we're consulting communities even in those moments where we're not necessarily working on a story. We're transparently providing a look at how the sausage is made. We're keeping our audience and our community members abreast of how our reporting's going. We're asking them for feedback. We're asking them for story ideas. We're asking them for, you know, just like involving them in the reporting. And so it's a form of co-creation in a lot of ways. And it empowers community members to tell us what they really care about, because who knows communities better than the community members themselves, right? And so really, that's a big distinction about the Green Line. But there's one other distinction, or really several, that I really want to highlight. The first and foremost is the fact that we, at the core part of our model, is like an action journey. And so we're really about like we said, helping young Torontonians survive and thrive in a rapidly changing city, young and other underrepresented Torontonians. So we have this action journey model that's quite unique that really kind of brings people along this journey. And I think about it as like media as being a pillar of democracy. So journalism is really important for a healthy democracy. And really fundamentally, journalism is a public service. And people use journalism as a way to help them navigate and understand their lives better and also to kind of do something about a situation. And I feel like in the last little while, that's really fallen by the wayside and there's been a lot of disconnects between journalism and its role in a functioning democracy. So really, I'll, I'll talk you through the action journey if that's okay, Stefan. So in a given month, we tackle, the Green Line tackles the systemic issue facing the city. So for example, in April, we're looking at the issue of COVID reentry. We all know how well that went for everybody, but it didn't really go the best. And so we're really trying to unpack that issue and look at like what went wrong, but not only what went wrong, like what are the pathways forward? What are the solutions that, that are existing at a grassroots level, at a corporate level, at a government level that we can actually take action on to make our lives better and our communities better and healthier? So I'll give an example of, of this piece or this action journey that we're rolling out in April which I'm really, really excited about. And I hope everybody listening will be too. So in week one, we publish an explainer that breaks down the systemic problem that we're looking at. So in this case, it's COVID reentry. We publish that on our Instagram. So it's a very visual story that's deconstructed and tailored to that platform. Week two, we have the long form solutions focused feature that's very interactive, that really takes a solutions lens to the systemic problem. So it really reports on existing solutions to this issue of COVID reentry, how we could have done it better. And in this case, it's actually looking at solutions that emerged or frameworks that emerged during the Spanish flu of 1918. And we're seeing a lot of parallels between that and what's happening with COVID-19. So it's quite instructive and actually a lot more similar than people may think. Then week three, we have an event where we convene sources from the story, community members, uh, stakeholders, industry leaders, anyone who's really invested in this issue of COVID reentry to chat and discuss the issue, but not only that, surface solutions to this issue so that the solutions that are surfaced are actually from community itself. And then week four, we actually publish an article that covers that event from week three. So effectively what happens is that 
we are reporting on the solutions that are being surfaced by community and reflecting them back to the community or back to the public so they can then take action on those, those suggested solutions. And then not only that, those solutions that emerge inform our ongoing editorial coverage of COVID and COVID and reentry, because that's not going to be an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. So you can see how we're kind of bringing people along this journey of not just passively consuming the news, but actually transforming them into like civically engaged citizens in Toronto. Awesome. Yeah. And that's obviously a super exciting approach and it's direly needed in a time where I think the last two years has actually made it from my perspective, at least as a climate activist, much more difficult to get involved in actions and really anything just because of how hard it was to actually have in-person actions, which is the number one way people sort of see themselves getting involved. And so trying to recreate and rebuild pathways into civic engagement now is, I think, a, a super important step. And so I'm curious if you sort of take that stream and plan you have there how does that scale? You know, what does five years down the road, you know, say everything goes right because everything always goes right as startups. <laughs> now, um, what does it look like, you know, five years in the road it, it, as, a, as, you, as you grow? Okay. So, oh man, so success to me looks like genuine impact as a result of this community-driven journalism, that there are actually policy changes that happen or even, even beyond that, just, you know, if, a community member writes in and says like something that we produce at the green line actually helped them navigate a situation in the city or help improve their lives in some way. That's success to me. I know that I'll be successful once my community members and people that I serve tell me that, but beyond that, I would really love to be financially sustainable. And I want to be able to create a community driven outlet. That's really part of the fabric of the city that isn't just like removed. I actually really want to be part of the city and really engaged. And I don't have any designs to like create an, like I don't, I have no intention of creating an empire. That's that's really actually quite harmful when it comes to media. Like I don't really believe in, in heavy media consolidation. I don't believe in overly corporatized media. I think it's really important to have a lot of smaller independent local outlets that are healthy and sustainable. And I guess in five years though, if my model is successful, I'd love to see other similar outlets take this model and actually pop up in other cities across Canada and perhaps North America and around the world. Like that would be amazing to see, to be able to prove that this action journey works and that it's actually tangibly improved the lives of Torontonians, especially young and underrepresented ones, and then influences other people to create similar outlets. That would be incredible. That would be like a win all around for me. Awesome. So clearly a big part of this, you know, is one big part of this is the action journey. And I think the second big part of this, which I think are interconnected, of course, is this idea of community-led journalism. And I, and I think that that is something that people may not be as familiar with, you know? And so can you dive into a little bit about what you mean by community-led journalism and why you think it's so important? Yeah, so community-led journalism is so important because like I said, remember I told you how the traditional model is very top-down? And it's very, it's very paternalistic and pedantic in a lot of ways. It's like, we know best. And therefore, you need to read the stuff that we think is important for you to know. The thing about community-driven journalism is that it enables reportage and reporting that provides a holistic understanding of a community, whether that's like a particular geographic area, like a news desert, which I consider Scarborough, but also places like Regent Park. Rexdale, Jane and Finch, like a lot of those places are con considered underrepresented. So it's like a holistic understanding of 
all that's good and bad and everything in between about those communities. And the reason why it's so much more holistic is because community members can see the good and the bad and the ugly and everything in between. Oftentimes the stuff that gets surfaced by folks who are taking a more top-down approach to assigning the news of the day is that, you know, they hear for Spar- for the longest time, Scarborough is only ever seen as like a, a crime-filled suburb oftentimes. So the kinds of stories that would get assigned would be crime-focused stories. And because those editors would not necessarily be part of Scarborough, for example, they wouldn't know any better or they wouldn't have time or resources to pursue coverage that goes deeper. So it's not necessarily even a nefarious thing that goes on at news outlets. Like everybody knows that media, the industry is struggling financially. Whereas community-driven journalism, like I said, is from the community, so it's more holistic. And it also is, it actually highlights and illuminates issues that have been very much overlooked. Because like I said, if you're somebody who has only a kind of a broad idea of a particular community, you're only going to report on the things that are usually reported on to begin with. And so given this sort of hyper-local approach, which I think is deeply needed. I'm curious how you would imagine approaching sort of more globalized topics. You know, like what does the green line covering climate change look like? Oh, I love that. I love that. I do think, so this is such a, like a common refrain, but I believe it's so much. And I actually walk the walk when it comes to this these days, which is think globally and acts locally. I really believe in human connection and I believe that everybody is fundamentally connected I mean, just even what we're seeing in Ukraine, like this outpouring for people who are like, obviously like the victims of war there, like you can see like how, and especially in such a, like a diverse city, like Toronto, where there's so many diasporas, it's kind of impossible for us to not think of ourselves as like connected cities around the world or places around the world. So I actually would say like focusing on diasporas in the city is what we're looking at and just really actually looking at the diversity of the city in a meaningful way, not just kind of using it as like lip service or kind of like corporate speak. It's like the fact is like I'm somebody who is born and raised in Scarborough, who's a child of Hong Kong immigrants, who also likes which Hong Kong was, you know, colonized by Britain. So there's like, you know, it's just like a very nuanced kind of migration journey that led my family to Canada. And so we are actually inherently connected to other parts of the world by virtue of migration. And so I think Toronto is uniquely placed in that way to like, in that local journalism is inherently global because so many of us come from other parts of the world or are born to parents who are from other parts of the world or have grandparents from other parts of the world, you know? So that's how I see it. And just to be more concrete about how we cover issues like climate change, for example, we created a guide to climate action several months ago And to me, that issue is universal. Like to me, I don't even know if we really need to localize an issue like the climate crisis because we can see it all around us in the city. So it's like young people in Toronto care about this issue and therefore it's a local issue. And so for us to make it more hyper-local, we just provide resources or links, for example, or recommend resources that are local that may help somebody, you know, engage in climate action. So it's that's how we're localizing it. It's more practical in that sense. Cool. So I think you had talked about how you find and how you see sort of the the conglomeration of media outlets as an antithesis to goodness um, is bad. And, you know, antithesis to goodness is by far the most words you could possibly put in to say the word bad. <laughs> I'm sorry to every listener. That that's harmful to society and the overall goal of media. Yeah. So I'm curious why you think that and how you see the role of independent news within our current media landscape. 
So I feel that way because in the early 2010s, I was part of this wave of digital media outlets that was like, it was like sexy unicorns, like BuzzFeed growing really large and Vice growing really large and all that. And I was part of this company called Mashable and we were like getting venture capital investment. And it was all very exciting until it was not and everything crashed and burned. And so for me, I learned from that experience. There's a lot of reasons why consolidation of media and like hyper growth of like blind growth of media outlets is really toxic. So first of all, like I think as an individual kind of like newsroom staffer, reporter, or editor, it is just untenable in terms of like pace of work. It is, it's very much about feeding the beast. It's prioritizing quantity of clicks over quality of journalism because you're prioritizing advertisers because the issue is that a lot of tech giants have been eating up digital ad dollars that used to go to, you know, straight to the media publications themselves. And those dollar amounts are getting smaller and smaller. So the only way to generate more revenue is to pump out the content. And I use content in a very specific way. I'm not saying journalism. It's like just pumping out as much content as possible so that you can get as many clicks as possible so you can please your advertisers essentially, right? And even though that's not a conscious effort on the part of a lot of journalists who work in those environments, a lot of journalists who work in those environments really care about the journalism. It just is like, that's the way the business model works. And that's how that entity is funded. So a, a publication's business model really actually impacts the quality of the journalism that's produced. So that's one of the reasons. The other is that like, I actually just don't believe that consolidated media actually delivers on really quality journalism in a way that people, especially on the ground at a local level need. So like the more you're centralized and you like have, for example, your main HQ is in Toronto, but then you're serving like a small remote community in the North. How can you really effectively serve them if you're that removed? And so for me, like the idea of like intense expansion for its own sake doesn't really make sense to me if your goal is actually trying to provide quality journalism that actually is a public service that meets people's needs and actually serves them properly, right? So that fundamentally is the reason why I just don't think it works. And independent media, like what's amazing is that there's like an explosion of independent media outlets in not only in Toronto, but across the country. I'm not the only one. So you guys should definitely go out and try to support as many independent media outlets as possible. The thing is, we're also covering a broad swath of geography, but not by expansion through collaboration. So I myself has, have partnered with, I'm going to shout out a couple of people, The Hoser, Rabble, To The Town, which is a movie, uh, like a film-based Toronto publication. We are collaborating. I'm not trying to absorb them. Like they're not trying to absorb me. We are literally saying like, hey, you care about good journalism too. We care about delivering great journalism to our public. So let's work together and do this. And I find that a lot of other independent media outlets are super down to do that. So I just think this is a future model that is being embraced more and more, which I'm super stoked about. Yeah, we've, we've had some people on previously talking about these different collaborations that are happening that within media, which I think is a really exciting opportunity. So. People have now listened to you. They are very excited about the launch of this green line. How can they make sure they experience the launch and keep up to date with what you're up to? Okay. So the launch is on April 1st, but you guys can still definitely amplify and support us in the lead up to the launch. So what you can do, you can do several things. The first is just check out the greenline.to. So it sounds like how it's spelled. And it, by the way, yes, if you guys are wondering, it is a reference to line two on the TTC. It's the line that made me feel connected to the rest of the city. So it's kind of symbolic of the every person. And I just kind of love it. But check out the greenline.to. 
Uh, right now it's a landing page, but we're unveiling our full website with long form pieces as of April 1st. The next thing you could do is follow us on social. So we're on Instagram, which is where we're most uh, kind of active, followed by TikTok. We're also on Twitch, as well as Facebook and Twitter. And then the other thing you do is subscribe to our newsletter. So if you go to thegreenlight.to, you scroll down to the bottom of the landing page, you can sign up for our newsletter, which will keep you up to date on the green line goings on into the future. And then finally, I would love it if you became a paying member of the green line. So we have a membership program that gives you access to all sorts of cool things, basically member events. We also have like, you'll have access to long form pieces right now. They're free to read, but soon we're going to be putting some of them behind a paywall. So this will give you access to long form pieces and also to more above all, you get access to this really great community of like-minded folks who really care about their city and want to take action uh, to help others in their communities. So those are the things that you can do. I'm just going to quickly repeat them again. Follow us on social, subscribe to our newsletter, us become a paying member of the Green Line. And you can do that by heading to our Patreon. So look up the Green Line on Patreon or go to uh, patreon.com slash to. That's pretty much it. Those are all the things you can do. But even more importantly to me, the number one thing that you can do is actually contact us to send us your story ideas, things that are happening in your community that you really care about, that you want us to cover, that you feel are being overlooked by other existing media. To me, that is the most important thing you can do because I really want to build relationships with especially young and other underrepresented folks in the city. And so we really want to cover what matters to you and reflect your lived experience and actually serve you properly. So thanks in advance for your support and thanks for listening. Amazing. Thank you so much, Anita Lee, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Green Line. Thanks so much for being here and have a wonderful day. Thanks, Stefan.